Hello and welcome to the Something Peculiar Podcast. Today's episode will be presented by the ghost of Elliot Jones. My apologies, I got quite into that. Uh, I will be haunting the archetypal final girl. Ray are you positively terrified? Absolutely. I'm definitely running towards that door. Everyone's telling me not to go through. Uh, how's your week been? How are you? I'm pretty good. Again, we are recording on a day which is absolutely swelteringly hot. I've got the blinds closed. Uh, I'm sat here, basically my pyjamas. And my audio's fixed. Woo! Yeah, Ray bought a new microphone. So can you give us a... Crispy. Crispy. Oh, I can't wait to edit that. <laughs> um, it's raining here. It's really unpleasant and quite cold, yeah. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, so, you know, it's always sunnier on the other side of the bridge. So, let's just get into it. Today, we will be looking at the ghost of cock. Of cock? The ghost of cock. As in rooster or genital area? As in fucking meat and veg. No, this is the ghost of cock lane. Right, that makes much more sense. She's all cock and no message. She'll give you the night of your life. In all seriousness, have you heard of this case, Ray? No, I haven't heard of the ghost of cock. Lane. <laughs> <laughs> Lane. Do you have any reservations regarding hauntings in general? What are your general sort of opinions on ghosts and that sort of area of the paranormal? Okay, so I think uh, me and you've had a conversation about this before. Um, we both kind of agree, or at least I think we agree, that spirits are repeated energy going over the same things over and over again. I don't think that ghosts have any sentience, if you know what I mean. Yep, 100% agree. So I guess if we're talking about a haunting, that would mean a ghost would have to have sentience because he would wake up in the morning and be like, okay, 11pm, I'm going to scare the fuck out of Jessica. Then after that, I'm going to rattle around the dishes a bit in the sink. <laughs> Maybe I'll make the spoon fly across the room. Who knows about that? So you don't really agree with poltergeists? No, I don't agree with poltergeists. Well, that was the Something Peculiar podcast. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Hope you had a beautiful time. <laughs> so the Cock Lane Ghost is a Georgian-era haunting that attracted mass public attention in 1762. Cock Lane is a small street in Smithfield, a district in the centre of London. Right. A little bit of history prior to the haunting. It was famous for housing several medieval brothels. We can assume perhaps this is where the name came from. So brothels were on Cock Lane. Yep, Shag Street was taken and <laughs> Fuck Alley was really bad for business. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't meet your mother for brunch on Fuck Alley, would you? The following story will follow the life and times of William Kent, a usurer or usherer, I'm not sure how to say it, from Norfolk. Classic for us not to know how to say things. Yeah, so ushery or usury is the practice of unethical, illegal money lending. So we'd call that a loan shark nowadays. Right, so he wasn't a good guy then. Bit of a bastard. Bastard man. In 1756, William married a woman from North Wiltshire, Elizabeth Lines. She were as West Country as it get. Daughter of fruit and veg salesman. <laughs> Regardless of Mr Kent's cunty behaviour, it is reported that they were very much in love. How do we know that? Who said this? I'm not a, I'm not a liability to say that. This is just what Wikipedia says. <laughs> <laughs> they both moved to a village called Stoke Ferry in Norfolk, which is essentially buttfuck nowhere. I'd never heard of it. Okay. 
William was cock of the block here, though. He owned the local <laughs> inn, and he later expanded his monopoly to encompass the local post office. Wow, imagine having all of that under your belt. Yeah, I own a pub and a post office. What have you got? That was a really big deal back in the day. But how random are those two things, though? I suppose now, yeah. You wouldn't see someone in EastEnders owning both the post office and the pub. So once they're barred from the pub, they're barred from the post office. <laughs> uh, I'll have six first-class stamps and a, a pint a bit of please, love. You're barred. Get out of here. It was apparent that William had knocked up Elizabeth well before he intended to marry her, as she was reportedly heavily pregnant upon marriage. That's a big old oof. That's kind of how it went, though, isn't it, back in the day? You got someone pregnant, you married them. That's why my parents are together. (laughs) (laughs) This is when Elizabeth's sister, Frances, or more commonly referred to as Fanny, moved into the family abode. She was to help out around the house and assist with the childcare duties once the child had arrived. That's a bit weird. Homewrecker! I don't know, though. Is it weird? Back in those days, you used to keep your family quite close, didn't you? Sounds like William could have afforded to get help. Do you know what I mean? He definitely had enough money to pay for anyone. Maybe it doesn't really say that he was paying uh, Fanny, but I don't know. It's it's not like he... I think he's skinging out a bit. Well, don't they say that the richest people stay rich because they don't spend money? That's true. Scrooge McDuck. And also, he was paying to keep Fanny. Isn't that a hilarious sentence right there? <laughs> no, he, was, he wasn't paying to keep Fanny. Fanny he wasn't was just... paying to keep Fanny. <laughs> but you always pay to keep Fanny, really. Yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> Tragically, a month into the marriage, Elizabeth passed away during childbirth. I'm not sure why I'm laughing. <laughs> they couldn't have been that happy then if she passed away one... Oh, it was a happy marriage for one month. You know, it takes years for you to despise your partner. <laughs> Homewrecker Fanny opted to stay with William and the infant in Norfolk. She kind of done an amazing job of child rearing as the kid passed away relatively quickly after his mother. It's always Fanny that makes that breaks up a home, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Fanny shouldn't be killing your kids. So. <laughs> oh God. Uh, Is this entire podcast just going to be Fanny jokes now? Yep, that's why I picked it. (laughs) (laughs) Fanny soon fell victim to Kent's bastardly charm, and the two began a relationship. Wife dies, just fuck his sister, man. It's the closest thing you can get. It's just like um, having your brother wank you off. It's not gay if you don't look him in the eyes. It's not gay if you don't look at him. It's same blood, man. Doesn't count. William travelled to London to seek advice regarding the intricacies of marriage to your dead wife's sister. (laughs) The church forbade them from marrying as Elizabeth had bore him a son. This union was therefore opposed on canon law of the time. I guess if at any point in history you were allowed to marry your dead wife's sister, it would be the Georgian era. So I'm quite surprised at that. Yeah, I thought that was quite odd. Like, even now, like, you think, oh, he's a bit of a dick for doing that. But I don't think there's any law against it. No. Something must have gone down on this trip to London, though, as upon his return to Fanny in their Norfolk home, (laughs) he announced that he intended to move to London with the intent of purchasing some place in public office. Fully just going to leave her there. Well, he can't marry her, so what, what's he going to get out of it? William had tasted the sweet bachelor lifestyle of London. <laughs> he just made up the canon law bollocks on the train home. He was like, mm. Yeah, sorry, baby, I can't marry you because God will be real pissed. But, you know, we can, we can still smoosh booties. <laughs> He's quoted as saying that he hoped business would erase the passion he had unfortunately indulged. 
So, he, like, he, he felt bad for it, but William did straight up hit her and quit her. That was a one night stand. Yeah. With your dead wife's sister. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't get any more complicated than that, can you? He felt guilty because he called out Elizabeth's name, dude. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he started crying. Elizabeth. Because apparently they were in such a loving marriage. Do you think that's just like a general Georgian era breakup line, though? Sorry, it's against Sorry, Canada it's law. Sorry, it's against Canada law. Like someone asks you to do something, like your mom asks you to tidy your room. Sorry, it's against Canada law. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> the church won't allow it. Sorry. So William left Fanny. Every time, I can't <laughs> help it. I can't help it every single time. So William left Fanny, <laughs> dro- dropped his estate and business in Norfolk and moved to London. Not the post office. Yeah, the post office is gone, man. He don't care. But I'm assuming he left Fanny to look after this stuff. But Fanny just won't quit. Oh, no. Despite her family's obvious disapproval of their relationship, Fanny was writing quote-unquote passionate letters to Mr. Kent, filled with repeated entreaties to spend the rest of their lives together. Well. William eventually relented and allowed her to join him at his new lodgings. All right, fine, I guess you can come. They continued their relationship discreetly and even wrote wills in each other's favours. Oh, okay, so maybe he just wasn't a smash and pass, you know? Well, I think he clearly, he must have went up to London for a couple of weeks. (laughs) Just had some serious drug-filled sex parties. And then was like, oh, yeah, all right, now I'll settle down. Yeah, we've all been there. Sounds like every boy in their 30s. Yeah. (laughs) Can't wait for my time. (laughs) The landlord of the new lodging soon found out about the current unlawful arrangement. (gasps) Yeah. What's the landlord going to do about it? I don't know, but it's assumed that Fanny's family must have got in touch with him somehow because they were really pissed. So they were really pissed off that their daughter is being taken care of by a man with a lot of money in London. Oh, woe is me. Yeah, but this man had also already married their previous daughter, had a son with that daughter, and both fucking died. (laughs) The landlord expressed his opposition to the two's arrangement by refusing to repay a sum of money that Kent had loaned him. Always a good move, that, isn't it? Yeah, never repaying a loan shark. Yeah, or, or just generally for Kent to lend money to his landlord. We're a fucking dumbass. Maybe he's just like, all right, take it out my next week's rent. That is true, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the landlord and William spat ensured their eviction. Kent's retort to this, got him fucking arrested. Got him arrested? For what? Yeah, just, I don't know, daddy's money claims. I wish we could do that on a normal basis. Just get your landlord arrested for the minor things. Yeah. <laughs> Washing machine's well, not working. Landlord rested. I was just thinking Calgon then. Why Calgon? <laughs> Washing's machines are longer with Calgon. Yeah, but like, we would definitely get your landlord arrested for all the shit that they've done. Yeah. The less said about that, the better. They've still not gotten in touch with me, by the way. Awful. Just for the podcast, uh, my house could have burst into flames <laughs> at any point. Uh, live wires dangling everywhere. I assume that this landlord was pretty jaded about getting arrested because clearly he'd gone in touch with all his landlord mates and told them not to let Fanny and William inhabit any of their houses. Do not let Fanny in my house. I will always have room for Fanny in my house. Anyway, but this left the pair briefly homeless in 18th century London. Oh, How fucking God. scary. Well, you could they'll be like sleeping on a street corner and just a bucket of shit will land on their head. 
Oh God, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was mm. thinking about all the rapists and murderers. Oh, <laughs> I'm clearly more concerned with the shit landing on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst attending early morning prayers at the Church of Saint Sepulchre without Newgate, <gasps> it's a fucking mouthful. Without Newgate. Kent- yeah, without Newgate. Oh my Fuck God. Newgate. Fuck Newgate. <laughs> that, this seems to be like a, a running theme with a lot of churches from this era. And I think probably still now in London, they've got these really long names saying without Newgate on. I would have no idea what that's referring to, but sure, no. okay. Uh, they just use old gates. None of that Newgate <laughs> None shit. None of the Newgate shit around you. <laughs> But whilst they were attending morning prayers there, Kent and Fanny met Richard Parsons. Why do I recognise that name? Richard Parsons. You shouldn't. Not yet. Dick Parsons, anyway. <laughs> so we got Fanny, Kent and Dick. <laughs> I've had an, I see why you chose this story. Of course you, <laughs> of all people, chose this story. So Richard Parsons was the officiating clerk of the church. He was generally considered to be quite a respectable man of the cloth, but he was known locally as being a bit of a drunk who couldn't really provide for his family. So Richard Parsons listened to the couple's woes and was very sympathetic whilst realising, hey, I can earn a couple of bob, yeah? Mm. This is when Richard Parsons offered William and Fanny the use of his lodgings in his home on Cock Lane. Why, why is a man of the cloth, why is the man of the cloth got lodgings on Cock Lane? <laughs> can we just can we just like circle round back to why is a man of cloth got lodgings on Cock Lane, where all the brothels are? Because it's Dick Parsons, <laughs> Dick Parsons on Cock Lane. So the three-story London townhouse was located to the north of the church, down a narrow winding thoroughfare. So does that answer your question? It's pretty close to the church. No, I still think it's suspicious. The house was made up of a single room on each floor connected by a winding staircase. The couple would share their house with Parsons, Parsons' wife, and their two daughters, the elder of which was called Elizabeth. Okay. We'll call her Elizabeth II Electric Boogaloo to avoid confusion (laughs) with Kent's dead wife. Elizabeth back, and this time it's personal. (laughs) Elizabeth, talk your (laughs) dress. Elizabeth, Fast and the Furious 2. (laughs) <laughs> too fast, too Elizabeth. Too fast, too Elizabeth. <laughs> so Elizabeth too electric boogaloo was described as a little artful girl about 11 years of age. Not learning from his mistakes, Kent went and loaned 12 guineas to his new landlord. Do you mean guinea pigs? No, guineas. That was uh, the the coins of the time. Oh, I that was, was the currency. so confused. Why is he lending him two guinea pigs? 12, 12, 12 guinea pigs. Guinea pigs. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, didn't learn from his mistakes at all. He's loaned his new landlord 12 guineas and wants to have a single guinea repaid each month. Why is he lending his landlord all this money? Shouldn't he just be paying them? Like, why is it a lend? Well, this is how he's making his money, isn't it? Because he's an usherer or a sewerer. Okay. Relatively soon after moving in, Kent left his quote-unquote wife home alone as he was away attending a wedding outside of London. Okay. Due to their unlawful relationship, Fanny was not allowed to attend. He just doesn't want to be seen with her. It's just pure side-chick energy, really, isn't it? Big side-chick energy. Increasing their sexual misconduct, 
Can't ask the Elizabeth to electric boogaloo. She had the bed with Fanny whilst he was away. Why? I don't know why I specified that. Well, yeah. so she didn't have any male suitors coming round or something. I, I don't know. Well, naturally, Fanny's heavily pregnant because Kent just cannot keep her in his pants. Let's hope this one survives. Just you wait. Oh, no. Much like Fanny had done for her sister, Elizabeth to electric boogaloo. Stop calling her that was asked to help Fanny with the house, etc. Uh, they only shared a bed as there was one bed there. Okay, but... so you made it sound so weird. She was asked <laughs> to stay in her bed. Ooh. Yeah, because they had <laughs> one bed. That being said, though, she fully had a bed downstairs because she still lived with her parents. I'm not sure that she needed to stay in the bed. How old is Elizabeth, by the way? Eleven. Oh, it's a bit nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, just a bit. Eleven was like 40 then. I'm sure that's how everyone justifies it back then. This is starting to sound like some serious Shane Dawson behaviour. Oh no, we don't talk about Shane Dawson. Pure nonce though, isn't he? Yeah, he's a big fat nonce. Oh, I shouldn't Damn. say fat, triggering. He's a big oh. round nonce. <laughs> Bouncy nonce. It was this night that the first reports of strange noises occurred. Fully William in the wardrobe, wanking. You know when you started <laughs> this podcast? Yeah. I'm going to gloss over that as quickly as I possibly can. <laughs> when you first started this podcast, my mind was going straight to, okay, so William dies in this house on Cock Lane, and that's that's the ghost. But you're telling me it's a different, it's a different ghost. So it's not William yeah. that's dead. No, there's already... It's Some already strange a ghost noises there. occurring. So why didn't the other people hear it before they when they moved in? Well, like, Ray, why if you the wait till I finish the <laughs> podcast. Well, <laughs> All right, I have yeah, so many questions. I'll just leave them to the end. I'll let you know. Raise your hand, okay? If you, you can't you see ask me. A question. So the strange noises that occurred were reportedly scratching and scraping sounds. And they sort of attributed that to the neighbouring property because it was home to a cobbler. And it's Georgian era. There's rats everywhere. That is true. That is true, to be fair. The noises reoccurred on the following Sunday when Fanny asked Mrs. Parsons if the cobbler worked on Sunday evenings, to which he informed, no, I do not work on Sunday evenings. <laughs> right, so you're saying it's rats. Get ready for this. This is when shit hits the fan. <laughs> a third witness to the strange occurrences arrived in the form of the local public house landlord, James Franzen. After visiting the house, he reported seeing a ghostly white apparition ascending the stairs. Sure it wasn't just Elizabeth II electric boogaloo in a nightie going up to bed? No, it wasn't. It was too late. He was drunk. He bolted He was out. drunk. He was drunk. I don't know. I Can don't we... know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I've made that up. He fucking bolted out though. Like he was fully terrified by the sight. Parsons later went to visit him and genuinely had to console him on what he'd seen. I'm, again, I'm not with you. Uh, is, those houses were dusty. It could have been just a dust cloud. Raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I just mute my mic for the next hour? No, it's fine. Um... <laughs> Parsons later revealed that he too had seen the apparition. Well, yeah. When? Why didn't he tell anyone? Oh, I don't know. Because Parsons was a drunk. Maybe nobody believed him. 
do people of the cloth believe in ghosts and stuff then? Ah, well, this case completely divided the Christian community. Did it? Uh, this divided the Methodists from the uh, already practicing Christians. Right. But traditionally, people of the cloth shouldn't really believe in spirits. Well, who's Jesus, right? Jesus is just a spirit. No, he wasn't. Who, who's who's Moses, Ray? Moses is just a spirit. No, he wasn't. They were men. <laughs> they were real and who's men. Who's Judas, that Ray? Just a spirit. Yeah, right. They were all ghosted about. Fanny was only weeks away from giving birth. <laughs> How fucking long has Kent been at this wedding? <laughs> it's oh yeah, babe. Sorry, the party's just going on for so long. <laughs> is that is that another woman in the background? No, no. <laughs> Kent made arrangements for the pair to move to a new permanent property in Bartlett's Court, Clerkenwell. But by January 1760, it was deemed unready for habitation, so they had to move to an apartment nearby. Okay, so they moved out of the Man of Cloth's house and into another yeah. apartment. Okay. So they've moved, they've moved out of Cock Lane. So that was the case of Cock Lane. Oh my God. I was just about to say that's the shortest ghost story I've ever heard in my life. Some a, a dust cloud and rats scratching at a door. Yeah, that's it. No, you're fucking with me. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> this new apartment that they moved into was only meant to be a temporary stay. During their absence, a young lady named Catherine Friend had moved into the Cock Lane residence. This is my friend, friend. Have you met friend? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's my friend, friend. Her stay was short, however. She soon left the property due to the incessant continued knocking. Hello? Can someone please let me in? My it's wife like... has shut me out again. I'm drunk. <laughs> Go away, dick. <laughs> As January due to a close, Fanny fell ill. Oh, no. The attending doctor diagnosed her with early stages of an eruptive fever and informed Kent that their new lodgings were entirely inadequate for someone so unwell and in such a critical stage of pregnancy. Oh, shit. I hope Fanny made it. Bizarrely, she was then moved by coach to the assumedly unfinished house, Bartlett's Court. So they said, this this new apartment won't do. You must take her to the... Construction site. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the following day, her doctor returned to check on Fanny and met with her apothecary, which is like a pharmacist. Okay. Both agreed that Fanny's symptoms were indicative of smallpox. Oh no, Fanny had smallpox. Fanny had lumps. <laughs> you can't have a Fanny with lumps. This is just too easy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are the peak of comedy right now, making fun of someone's name. <laughs> <laughs> ha ha, Fanny funny. Anyway, Fanny sent for an attorney to ensure that Kent would inherit all of her estate. What did she have? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> a hairbrush, but two skirts. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was the one who made the money in this relationship. It was during this time that the mysterious noises of Cock Lane began yeah, once yeah. more. Or at least they started getting reported again. I don't know. Right, okay. So who was reporting on this? Uh, this is like the Parsons now. The Parsons family, after... Um, 
what was her name? Friend. Friend. After Friend had moved out because it was just too much fucking knocking yeah. going on. I'm assuming that nothing else was reported because nobody was actually staying in that room. Oh, okay. During this time now, the sort of end of January when Fanny was really ill. Yeah. The Parsons family are reporting that there's a lot of mysterious activity going on again. Like someone like walking around upstairs or something, I guess. I don't, It doesn't actually specify. Upon Fanny's deathbed, the rector of the deathbed? local parish church... Yeah. Deathbed? Smallpox. Smallpox was a complete death sentence. Fuck. Yeah. So it's really sad. On her deathbed, the rector of the local parish church assured Fanny that her sins had been forgiven. Okay. She passed away on the 2nd of February, 1761. Was she still pregnant? She's still pregnant. <laughs> oh, okay. So the Lyons family had a third sister that caught the attention of Kent. You're fucking with me. I am, sorry. (laughs) As the sole executor of Fanny's will, Kent ordered her a coffin. However, even in death, she remained Kent's dirty little side piece. Because he asked for the coffin to remain nameless. Didn't want anyone to know the nature of their relationship. You you should never hide your Fanny. You should never hide your Fanny. This is so sad. You should always be proud of your Fanny. Get your Fanny on show as much as you possibly can. Uh, Anyway, because it was like Georgian times and bathing wasn't a regular thing, Fanny smell. Oh, no. So, okay. She's she's dead. I'm sorry. This has been. (laughs) They're all dead in this story. It's Georgian time. Oh, yeah, that's true. Other than Kent. <laughs> so poor Kent had another, well, I wouldn't say wife because she never got that far. Another person of interest um, pass away and another child, I guess. Yes, really quite shitty, to be honest. Fuck. Four zero, man. The worst bit is this whole thing of a nameless coffin. I think you are absolutely asking for some some bad activity there. Right, okay. However... When registering the burial, he was forced to give a name. And rather than give the name Fanny Lines, he opted to give her a fake name. Why would you do that? Because he didn't, he couldn't deal with people finding out about their relationship. So he just left her nameless. Well, not even nameless, with a different name. With a fake name, yeah, I guess. I would be so pissed off if you did that to me. Do you not even (laughs) realise? Do you not even realise how second-hand angry I am right now for Fanny? Yeah, no, it's awful. Like, it's, it's, it's so mean. Fanny's family was still noted of her passing, and her sister Anne, who lived relatively nearby, attended the funeral. Upon learning the terms of Fanny's will, Anne attempted to block the rewritten inheritance in the doctor's commons, but unfortunately this failed. I still want to know what she had to give to him. Oh, we'll get to that. Okay, sorry. Kent, the already wealthy loan shark, had now inherited Fanny's share of her dead brother Thomas's estate. Ooh. This included a substantial share of money gained through the sale of Thomas's land. Kent even refused to pay his, or rather Fanny's, share of the outstanding legal complaints related to the sale of Thomas Lyne's land. So he's taking this money and he's going to run, run far. Yeah. Okay. This left the Lyne's family in, in a substantial financial deficit. So he's taken all of Fanny's money and refused to pay any of the debts related to it. Fuck. Well, I guess since they weren't married, he legally doesn't have to. But still, this is a guy with a lot of money and this family is like a fruit and veg salesman as the father. And I think he's like the only one who works. And the elder brother was a farmer who died. And that's the only bit of 
income they've ever had. Do you know what I mean? Was was selling this estate. Yeah, but again, like he hasn't done anything against the law. I know it's a shitty thing to do, but he hasn't done anything against the law because technically if they aren't married, I guess that's not his debt to share. He just yeah, gets all of her money. She wrote it. Yeah. So, less than a year later, William Kent remarried. Oh my God. This boy needs to slow down. It does start to make you think that he's not really giving much of a shit about these partners, is he? No. He's like, right, that one's dead. Move on to the next one. That one's dead. Move on to the next one again. Like, he's lost two children at this point as well. And this guy, just like, he doesn't really seem to care. Doesn't give a single fuck. So, so far we've had kind of a an inkling of some spooky shit going on. Yeah, very sort of minimal activity as of yet. Yeah, instead of paranormal activity, minimal activity. <laughs> yeah, the, the worst horror sequel. <laughs> Sometimes maybe your fridge makes a weird noise. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a slight breeze. <laughs> ooh, ooh, did you feel that? Slightly cold ooh. in just one specific area of the house. Unsurprisingly, old Dick Parsons was unable to repay Kent's loan. To be fair, like he'd, he'd got rid of the most of it. There was about three guineas outstanding. Regardless of the fact that this man had helped him and his now deceased wife out during a very difficult time in their lives, he instructed a solicitor to sue him. Fuck. He's cut Kent is, Yeah, he's a real bastard. Kent won the case as well, managed to recover the debt. Mm. Kent's a real Kent, man. The noises of the Cock Lane townhouse continued since their re-emergence in 1761. At first, they occurred infrequently, with the same intensity Fanny had faced during her stay at the house. The, the noises were likened to the sound of a cat scratching a wooden chair. These sounds became more and more frequent, and it became clear that they could not be stopped. No matter how much the Parsons family shouted and banged the walls, they would not desist. Elizabeth to Electric, Electric Boogaloo. The Parsons' eldest daughter suffered several fits during this period. You got no- nothing to say there? I was just thinking, you know, again, Georgian period isn't too good with health and everything like that. You know, cleanliness isn't the nicest thing. Fits can be brought on by loads of different things, like including mould even. Oh, really? I think if you've got long exposure to black mould, I believe, it can start to cause like serious mental problems. Oh, shit. Let me write this down because that's something else i got to slap my landlord for. <laughs> can I just say student landlords are Kent. Yeah, all of them are Kent. <laughs> Determined to find the source of the sound, Richard Parson hired a carpenter to remove the panelling around Elizabeth II's bed. She was sure they were emanating from below her. Like, she was getting really, really worked Under her bed? All right, that's a bit spooky. Yeah. Uh, This turned up fruitless. They couldn't find anything under the bed. Literally nothing. Not even rat droppings? No, none of that. (laughs) You're just saying that. You don't know, do you? No, swear to God. Like it says, there was nothing under there. Like, there was dust. That was it. Okay. Parsons decided to get the old band back together and amass the Jesus Squad. Jesus Squad incoming. Cross, activate. He got in touch with John Moore, the assistant preacher of St. Sepulchre's and the rector of St. Bartholomew the Greats. So now it's the Parsons and Moore show, man. So within the church of that era, the notion that a person's spirit might return from the dead to warn those still alive was a very commonly held belief. Okay. 
and this presence of what they assumed could be two restless spirits was therefore an obvious sign to both the men that a ghost had a very important message to disclose. Two restless spirits, not one. That's what they're assuming. This is where it starts to get quite interesting. Together, Parsons and Moore devised a complex method of communication with the deceased, one unlike anyone had seen before, and would prove to be invaluable in ghost communication cases in the generations to follow. It was their genius that single-handedly changed the course of future paranormal investigation and remains a faultless medium of communication with the dearly departed. One knock for yes, two knocks for no. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) The Jesus Squad found that by laying out these guidelines, the spirit would reply accordingly. The pig began to relentlessly question the spirit. Never have I ever haunted a room. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, that's no. (laughs) A ghostly flat party. I I like it. They determined that the spirit that currently haunts their abode must be Fanny Lines. But how could this be? Fanny Lines had lived in the house and was very much alive during the first haunting. Through extensive sceptical questioning, they found that the initial spirit was Fanny's sister, Elizabeth. She had come to warn Fanny of malicious intent. Fanny now took her sister's place, much like she had done in life. Why would you go back to that place? Of all the places that you could go back to as a spirit, why would you go back to there? What you've got to think is, if this truly is Fanny Lines. She didn't know anyone in London. These were the only people she knew, and she developed a connection with Elizabeth II Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) So you're telling me that uh, ghosts can only move in about a couple hundred mile radius to where they're buried? Less than that, like two miles down the road. Two miles down the road. (laughs) They also determined that Fanny had not died of smallpox, but rather from arsenic poisoning. Arsenic? Yeah, she'd been given arsenic. Fanny's spirit admitted that the deadly toxin was administered to her by Kent around two hours before her passing. Shit, so he's a real fuck. <laughs> he's a real big fuck. How do you think he got enough money to start his lending business? Oh my God, everything makes so much sense now. Yeah. So Fanny got killed with arsenic. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. Did you do that first time round? Yes. <laughs> John Moore, the now vice president of the Jesus Squad, recalled a conversation that he'd had with Fanny's sister after the funeral. Anne Lines complained that Fanny's coffin lid was screwed down so tightly that she couldn't see her sister's corpse. That's really fucking morbid. Also, how did she communicate that to him if they're working on the very intricate basis of one knock for yes, two for no? Less less RPA, less role play. Okay. <clears throat> let's see how long it takes us together. Uh, we going straight from the start. Do I know that you're Fanny Lines? Yes. Hey, Fanny, how's it going, baby? Uh, one knock for yeah, you good? Two knocks for nah. Oh, you clapping now. Okay. <laughs> Damn. Write that down, Mo. That's that's really interesting. I don't have anything to knock against. <laughs> She's talking as well. <laughs> Fuck. Fuck, get out, Mo. Get out. Uh what's what's got you down, Boo? You you want <laughs> yeah. What what's got you down, Boo? You you sad about being dead? One yes, two no. 
you're not sad about being dead then why are you down boo what, what, what's good is it our William Kent wait which one's yes and which one's no one for yes <laughs> oh damn boo yeah I know he a dick he sued me did he poison you with arsenic to murder you there we have it gentlemen that's how we go there Wow. So, uh, quite interesting. Mo, recalling this conversation that he'd had with Anne Lines, they couldn't get the coffin off, so Anne couldn't actually even see her sister's body. So, the pair then deducted that Fanny's body probably didn't show any signs of smallpox. Oh, that's why he had it on so tight. Yeah. Yeah, they'd be really severe scarring if she died of smallpox. But what about that doctor? Well, Kent brought the doctor. Uh, I see. So he bought him out. Yeah, it was somebody from Kent's little black book. And, you know, we're just assuming he wanted to keep it hidden. So he probably paid off as many people as he could. Okay. As a clergyman, John Moore, vice president of the Jesus Squad, was inclined to trust the ghost. But naturally, he wanted a second opinion. Who's inclined to just outright trust a ghost? Me? <laughs> if So if like an evil spirit came to you being like... Ooh, the moon's made out of cheese. You're like, oh my God, moon's made out of cheese. Always knew it. Always knew it. But to be fair, like, they're starting to put together a little bit of evidence in their head. Like, Moore already knew that the coffin couldn't be opened and things. So maybe he was just thinking, all right, this aligns up with with some form of storyline. Okay. So he enlisted the aid of Thomas Broughton, who was an early Methodist. He, He was one of the first people to define Methodism and their stance on spirituality. So a true metal guy. Just a really fucking cool guy. Broughton visited Cochlane, communed with the ghost, and left completely convinced of its authenticity. So how many people have we got that's either heard or seen this ghost? There's at least like six or seven. Yeah, okay. So if we go through it, you've currently got Richard or Dick Parsons. Yeah. Uh, you've got John Moore, vice president of the Jesus Squad. Yeah. You've got Thomas Broughton. Yeah. You've got Fanny, who communicated with her at some point. You've got Elizabeth, to Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. So that's five people. Oh, and the innkeeper. Also probably Dick's family. Yeah, and Catherine Friend. So that's ten people. There's a lot of people. Yeah, okay. Naturally, the story spread through London so quick. Yeah. It was at this point the ghost had developed a moniker. Do you want to guess? The ghost of Cockling. Scratching Fanny. I'm... No. I swear to God. I moved away from my mic. I can't I deal swear with this. to God, Scratch and Fanny is what the press referred to this hool haunting as. Oh my God. I know we've been making Fanny jokes the entire way through, but when someone else does it, it just doesn't feel right. Scratch and Fanny. I suppose Fanny didn't mean uh, vagina then. Yeah. A daily press, the public ledger, began to publish detailed accounts of the phenomenon and Kent fell under public suspicion as a murderer. Oh shit, so they're taking this seriously. Well, yeah, this one press, the public ledger, which has started saying, come on guys, put two and two together. Kent's on his third wife. The the same things we've been saying. Yeah, it's actually us. Yeah. We time travelled back. (laughs) And it was definitely me that came up with Scratching Fanny. (laughs) (laughs) William Kent was adamant that he'd clear his name, quite naturally. And he just wanted to prove that all of this was nonsense. Kent, accompanied by an unnamed witness, went to see John Moore. Moore, now CEO of the Jesus Squad, showed Kent a list of questions he and Parsons had drawn up for the ghost to answer. Moore told him that he did not think he was a murderer. 
but rather he believed the scratch in Fanny's presence indicated there was something behind darker than all the rest, and that if he would go to Parson's house, he may be witness to the same and convinced of its reality. They speak a bit funny back then, but essentially what I think he's saying is if Kent went there, this ghost would convince Kent that he was a murderer. Oh, but just come round my house and see it for yourself, like. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Kent then enlisted the aid of the two physicians who attended to Fanny in her last days. And alongside the Methodist, Broughton, the party went to Cock Lane. Party always ends up at Cock Lane. (laughs) On the house's upper floor, Elizabeth Parsons was publicly undressed and with her younger sister was put to bed. I have no idea why it says she was undressed. That's so strange. Why did they have to say that specifically? I know, like, literally, I read from a couple of sources and each and every one just mentioned at this one particular time they undressed her. Bunch of nonsense. But I, I guess Kent's looking for foul play or whatever. The audience sat around the bed, positioned in the centre of the room. They were warned that the ghost was sensitive to disbelief and told that they should accord it due respect. She's she's just shy. But isn't that the same in every single ghost story? It's like... No, you can't. You can't wait for it to show up because it won't show up then. Yeah, you have to. You just have to be here. When the séance began, a relative of Parsons, Mary Fraser, ran around the room shouting, "Fanny, Fanny, why don't you come? Do come, pray, Fanny, come, dear Fanny, come." come. I'm not going to rise to it this time. When nothing happened, Moore told the group that the ghost would not come as they were making far too much noise. He asked them all to leave the room telling them that he would try to contact the ghost simply by stamping his foot. About ten minutes later, they were told that the ghost had returned and that they should all re-enter the room. Moore then started to run through his and Parsons' list of questions. Are you the wife of Mr. Kent? Did you die naturally? By poison? (gasps) The audience gasps. Did any other person other than Mr. Kent, the bastard man, (laughs) administer it? There you have it, folks. Murder! Yeah, but what if it was just someone upstairs? It wasn't Ray. It was a ghost. Come on. Someone's just upstairs, like, listening in. And they're like, oh, shit, two two knocks. Nope, 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 nope. It's a ghost. After more questions, a member of the audience exclaimed, Kent, ask this ghost if you shall be hanged. And so he did, and the question was answered by a single knock. Fuck you, Kent. Kent exclaimed, Thou art a lying spirit. Thou art not the ghost of my eye, Fanny. She would have never said such a thing. Well, she did, like, love him or something, to stay with him all that time. But you'd be pretty pissed off if you'd returned as a spirit and you'd gone, Fuck me, I really love that bloke, and he's fed me a shit ton of poison. (laughs) Actually, yeah, he did kill her, so... (laughs) And the nameless coffin, you know, like... Changing her name. All right, yeah, I'm pissed now. This ghost pissed, yeah. You pissed for her? Yeah, I'm pissed for her. The ghost is, like, living through me. Interestingly, Scratching Fanny appeared to follow Elizabeth <laughs> to Electric, Electric Boogaloo. On the 14th of January, in the presence of two unidentified noble folk, she was transported to the house of Mr Bray, where more knocking sounds were present. You've completely lost me. What do you mean? transported to whose house? Just uh, to a man called Mr. Bray. Right, okay. So, like, I don't know, people wanted to see how authentic this was, I guess. Right. A few days later, 
Elizabeth was returned to Cock Lane, where another seance was held. Why is Elizabeth so key to the story, do you think? I'm assuming, like I mentioned earlier, there's just some sort of connection between Elizabeth II, Electric Boogaloo, and Scratch and Fanny, because they shared a couple of nights together. Shared a bed that one time. I think it went on for a couple of weeks. Okay, well, while he was at a wedding for like three months. Yeah, you know, she didn't really know anyone in London, so this was like a closest mate, I guess. You couldn't just text the boys. (laughs) In attendance for the seance was Mr. William Kent, the jet-setting millionaire bastard man. Also, the apothecary that he blatantly played off to lie about Fanny's condition, the local parish priest Stephen Aldrich, and Mary Fraser, the London relative. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, it would appear that Mary Fraser just decided that she wanted to hold the seances. <laughs> this time, the Jesus squad used candles to look under the bed to capture a glimpse of the ghost, but the ghost refused to answer. Mary claiming, she's not loving, not light. Which uh, I can only assume is ye olde English for she don't like light, mate. <laughs> That's like my housemate Jamie. Can't turn the lights on around him because he's like squinting. <laughs> I love Jamie to pieces, but he is a bit of a mole man. He's a mole man. So that was the end of that seance. Okay. There was no activity whatsoever. She didn't like the light. So prior to Fanny and Kent's move to the new house, they employed a maid, Esther Carrots Carlisle. Right, she's called Carrots because she had ginger ale, by the way. <laughs> okay. She had since moved to a new job and knew nothing of the haunting. Is this the construction area house? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Moore interrogated the shit out of her. The CEO of the Jesus Squad was just like, get her fucking down you now. They were good cop, bad cop in her. The whole yeah, Jesus fully. Squad. Drunk cop and bad cop. Drunk it must cop. have been horrible. <laughs> I'm going to be sick. I'll tell you anything. <laughs> Carrots told Moore that Fanny had been unable to speak in the days before her death. And she knew nothing of it being murder. She knew nothing of foul play. Well, no, you wouldn't know nothing of foul play. Moore demanded that they hold another seance tonight. Jesus Christ, how many seances do they need? One in which Carrots would now be the centre of communication. So they're just trying everyone. They're looking for a corroborating witness that is still alive. Gotcha. Kent arrived later that night, this time with James Franzen and priests William Dodd and Thomas Broughton, the early Methodist Christian. Mm-hmm. Mary Fraser began her now usual introduction. All right, you bunch of slags, you want to say something fucking weird? <laughs> oh my God, if I heard that, I'd be right there. More CEO of the Jesus Squad apparently got so pissed off with her, he just told her to get out. <laughs> She must have been really fucking irritated. Why was she even there? I just don't understand. I don't know. At one point of the story, she doesn't exist. And then at this point, she's just always there, apparently. <laughs> he then asked the whole party of about 20 people to leave the room. So there's a lot of people to this seance. Because p- people are hearing about it. People want to be there now and see it. Well, in that era, like things like this was like a spectacle, wasn't it? Fuck all else to do. It's essentially dark tourism today. Yeah. This time, the seance centred around Carrots, who addressed the ghost directly. Are you my mistress? Scratch, scratch. (laughs) Um, You could do it. Remain professional. Are you angry with me, madame? Fuck yeah, I am. (laughs) Then I am sure, madame, you may be ashamed of yourself, for I never hurt you in my life. At this, the seance was ended. Mary Fraser and James Franzen remained alone in the room, with James reportedly far too terrified to move. Mary asked if he would like to pray, and he was angered because apparently he just couldn't. 
couldn't bring himself to even pray. Oh, God. Crippled by fear. The seance resumed and Franzen later returned to his home, where he and his wife were reportedly tormented by ghosts knocking their bedchamber. At his own home? Yep. Oh my god, something followed him. Yeah. They, they latched on to Franzen for some reason. How are you feeling so far? Um. You starting to feel a little bit more swayed to it? I don't know. You know, this is Georgian era. A lot of this stuff is like elaborately made up and con artists were such a massive thing back then as well so uh, you haven't really got me yet i'm not gonna lie i mean to be fair it feels really quite tame by haunting standards today yes okay so at this point seances have genuinely become a daily occurrence and it appears far more centered around elizabeth two electric boogaloo rather than cocklane like, I genuinely think they just put adverts out in the local paper. Seances for children's birthday parties, christenings. They're just a travelling seance party now. So your prayers have been answered, Ray. This is when people begin to investigate the authenticity of these supposed hauntings. Amazing. I can't wait. This time the seance was held at the home of Mr Bruin on the corner of nearly Heuser Lane. In attendance was a man, and I quote, extremely desirous of detecting fraud and discovering the truth of this mysterious affair. My kind of man. Inside the house, a member of the group positioned himself against the bed, but was then asked to move by one of the ghost's sympathisers. <laughs> ghost sympathiser. <laughs> what else do I call him? <laughs> Believer, maybe? I like sympathiser more. <laughs> He refused, and following a brief argument by the ghost's supporters, he left. For the remainder of the night, the ghost made not a single sound, while Elizabeth, now extremely agitated, displayed signs of convulsions. When questioned, she confirmed that she had seen the ghost, but she was not frightened by it. At that point, several of the party left, but at about 7am the next morning, the knock-in once more recommenced. Parsons agreed to allow his daughter to then be moved on a different occasion to the house of Stephen Aldrich, the local parish priest <laughs> who had been attending the seances. For fuck's sake, just leave this little girl sleep in her own bed. I think what's going on here, though, is because the seances were so regular and they were in the newspaper so much, like Stephen Aldrich was kind of a friend of the Parsons family. Yeah. So I think they moved her there to give her a bit of space because people were just turning up at the door. Yeah, okay. Even weirder again now, Elizabeth was in high demand because two unnamed men got in touch with Parsons and were asking about her whereabouts, where she is, turned up at the door, like, we need to see her. And Parsons just told him, you know, fuck right off. And he later revealed that he believed this would probably be people the Kents paid to do their own private investigation. This is just getting way out of hand. Like, you were tormenting a young child just because she might have some connection to a ghost. The case caught so much attention that Horace Warpole, the fourth Earl of Orford, the grand old Duke of York and Lady Northumberland, alongside Lady Mary Coke and Lord Hetford, all visited Cock Lane to witness the event. They all had a party down Cock Lane. I'm going to tell you something which is probably going to be the final nail in the coffin for you. Okay. Parsons started to charge people now. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Parsons started to charge people to come in. I guess in because didn't have much money at all. Alongside Lord Dartmouth, Stephen Aldrich began to draw together the people who would be involved in a full-scale investigation. Among those invited were Dr. Samuel Johnson, not not Samuel Jackson, because that, that'd be really fucking cool, 
Bishop John Douglas and Captain Wilkinson. The captain opted to bring his pistol and a large stick. He had every intention of shooting the ghost and using the large stick to get away. I have no idea what he was going on about it. Why a pistol and the large stick? Yeah, maybe just a large stick, but... I, I, I guess it, he was going to shoot the ghost <laughs> and then use this large stick to just pole vault the fuck out of it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. When the mad bastard turned up with a fucking pistol, the ghost stayed quiet. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> On the 1st of February, the investigative squad attended another seance. This time unarmed and they left crazy Captain Wilkinson like at the bus stop or something. <laughs> I don't know. In the Waffle House. He's with Neil yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> The knocking ensued in the early hours of morning. The group of sceptics demanded some form of evidence of the spirit's authenticity. Through her series of knocks, Scratching Fanny promised... <laughs> I don't know how she did this. <laughs> the should the group venture to the vaults underneath the Church of St. John, a single knock from inside of the coffin will be talking of her presence. But only one of you can go into the vault because I'm shy. <laughs> really? Actually? Yeah, no, I swear to God. How did she tell him this? It must have taken all night. Yeah. As the group moved outside and deliberated the journey and general veracity of the supposed spirit, they were once again summoned inside of Elizabeth II Electric Boogaloo's chamber. (laughs) When the gentleman entered, Elizabeth declared that she felt the spirit like a mouse upon her back. Like, they called him back for that. Just that. (laughs) Ooh, I had a tickle up my back. (laughs) Must have been ghost. No, just fleas. They demanded the Scratching Fanny manifest her existence by appearance right now, through the impression on a hand or body of anyone present. So they mean like a physical scratch or a rip of clothing, something like that. Yeah, something that you can literally see. Like, it's not like a sound off in the distance or something which can easily be someone else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. That's what I would have done. Scratching Fanny once again declared that the party must find her coffin and await the knock. Right. They ventured to the church, followed her rules, but unfortunately, silence ensued. The spirit had failed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Samuel Johnson released documentation of his encounter, or rather the lack thereof. (laughs) Media sensationalization just continues to occur and whip people up into a bit of a frantic frenzy. And one such report deduced that Scratching Fanny was unable to knock a coffin because Kent had removed the corpse days before. Oh, God. Like, people took this seriously. Like, I'm guessing they were just so fucking bored. They were like, yeah, okay, crack open the coffin and let's have a look. So invested in this story. It's like big brother of his day. (laughs) But people took it so seriously that an undertaker was forced to desecrate the coffin of Fanny Lines upon Kent's instruction as proof. She was very much still in her coffin and still dead. <laughs> just going to say, still dead. Nothing's changed there. Yeah, they opened her up and just everybody just felt a bit sick. <laughs> this really cut me up, okay? Yeah, okay. Disappointed that the ghost had failed to reveal herself, Moore now told Kent that he believed it was an imposter and that he would help him reveal it. More flip-flopped. Yeah, more resident chieftain of the Jesus squad pulled the old switcheroo. He's a Judas. I can't believe this. I know. Heartbreaking. So guess what they did? What? They had another seance. Oh, for God's (laughs) sakes, man. Throughout the whole of January and I think whole of February at this point, or most of February, Parsons has been charging for these seances, so he's probably made a fucking killing. He's just like, 
Yeah, okay, let's do another one. Oh, what a shame. We're going to have to do another one. Oh, oh two today? No way. We're selling lemonade downstairs <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth Lines t-shirts. Caps that say Scratch and Fanny. I went to Scratch and Fanny's and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. If we ever, ever make merch, do I merch. want that <laughs> so bad. Another seance saw the knocking continue unabated, but by then Parsons was in an extremely difficult and serious situation. So the ghost is going fucking mental, knocking like crazy and scratching like crazy now. You know what just popped into my head? Like, what if they're just dropping some sick tunes? Like, the ghost is just knocking away at like... She was just, she always wanted to be a drummer and she was just practicing. She literally just had a kick drum right up against the wall. The neighbours have bought a drum kit. (laughs) So as I said, the majority of people had become fully sceptical of this event. But still, Parsons was keen to prove that this ghost was not an imposter. He was not lying. So he allowed his daughter to be examined by a third party in the house on the Strand and another house in Covent Garden. And they kept her for about three or four days. This poor, poor girl. Like, all she did was have some kind of relationship with Fanny. And now (laughs) her life is ruined. There, she was tested in a variety of different ways, which included being swung in a hammock (laughs) with her hands and feet extended. (laughs) This girl's just getting whipped around in a hammock at, like, fucking serious speed. Like, yeah, try and fucking knock now, you bitch. Want to see some real speed, (laughs) Bitch. The noises commenced. The noises fully still happened when she was getting swung in this hammock. So maybe it's just not connected to her then. However, they did seem to stop once they stopped swinging Elizabeth and she placed her hands outside of the hammock. But a hammock's like cloth. Yeah. You, you can't knock cloth. For two nights, the ghost was silent and Elizabeth too electric boogaloo was told that if no more noises were heard by Sunday, she and her father would be committed to Newgate Prison. Done. Done. Her maids then saw her conceal on her persons a small piece of wood, about six by four inches wide, and informed the investigators. More scratches were heard, but the observers concluded that Elizabeth must have been responsible for the noises, and that she'd been forced by her father to make them. It's starting to look a little bit bleak for old Richard Parsons and his daughter. Yeah. Scratching Fanny failed to prove her existence, and they're being threatened with arrest for fraud. Well, I mean... Lock them up. Please prepare yourself. Welcome to Ghost Court, motherfucker! (laughs) An official trial was held at the Guildhall in London on the 10th of July, 1762. Presiding over the case was Lord Chief Justice William Murray and proceedings began at 10am. We're in Ghost Court, motherfucker. Welcome to Ghost Court. The only ghosts here are the ghosts of your past. <laughs> they haunt me daily. Woo! I have done such atrocities. <laughs> Brought by William Kent against the above defendants for a conspiracy to take away his life by charging him with the murder of Frances Lyons by giving her poison whereof she died. So Kent has ordered this quite naturally. The courtroom was crowded with spectators, who all watched as Kent gave evidence against those in the dock. He told the court about his relationship with Fanny, and of his supposed resurrection as Scratching Fanny. (laughs) Dr. Cooper, who had served Fanny as she lay dying, told the court that he always believed the strange noises in Cock Lane to be a trick. 
and his account of Fanny's illness was supported by her apothecary, James Jones. The account of Dr. Samuel Johnson, or Jackson, and several other prosecution witnesses described how the hoax had supposedly been revealed. Well, also, I know we're in ghost court, but... Ghost court! But I don't understand what evidence they have of ghosts existing in this ghost court. Ghost court! Imagine that being brought to court today. Like, I mean, it almost makes me want to go through law school. <laughs> Just to start a... Ghost Court. Oh my God, I could be literally Chief Justice of Ghost Court. Another thing that I want in merge. Ghost Court. (laughs) So the publicist of the local newspaper, the public ledger, Richard James, was accused by the prosecution's last witness of being responsible for the offensive material he published. Oh. It was his biased publication of the story that had completely defamed Kent's character in the public eye. Right, okay, yeah. The defence witness included some of those who had cared for Elizabeth Parsons and presumably still believed that the ghost was real. Mm. Other witnesses included the carpenter responsible for removing the panelling from Parsons' apartment and Catherine Friend, who to escape the knocking noises had to leave the property. You mean Catherine Friend? Friend. All very credible sources. Yeah, come on. Catherine Friend, she's so credible. She's your friend, right? Right. James Franzen was next on the stand. His story corroborated by Fanny's servant, Esther Carrots Carlisle, who had testified later on in the day. He detailed his first encounter with the spirit of Cock Lane, how he saw the spirit of Elizabeth Lines prior to Fanny's passing. He then discussed the communication with Scratch and Fanny and laid out the claims made against Kent by the spirit. Franzen went on to detail the torment he and his wife followed facing the seance, how they banged his bedchamber doors and he was frozen stiff throughout. Is this this <laughs> is the guy stiff. where the, the ghost followed him home? Yeah, yeah. Something that I am, even though I may not believe in sentient spirits, always completely terrified of happening to me. <laughs> Thomas Broughton, the early Methodist, was also called, as was a priest surnamed Ross. We don't know him. He wasn't, he, he wasn't really, like, central to the story. Just just Ross just wanted to get involved. Fuck you, Ross, get out. There's always a Ross that wants to get involved. <laughs> Ross wanted to be part of the Jesus squad. Judge Murray asked him whether he thought he had puzzled the ghost or had the ghost puzzled him. <laughs> That's just e the English shit that I don't really understand, but it just basically calling him a dumbass, I think. Yes. John Moore, the now commanding chief of the Jesus squad, presented Judge Murray with a letter from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, my God. Murray placed the letter in his pocket, unopened, and told the court... This must be impossible. It cannot relate to the the cause in question. For the life of me, I could not find out what was in that letter. That is so annoying. You're in the court talking about the authenticity of ghosts and shit. The defence is starting to look a little bit weak. Boom. Here is a letter from God's main man. (laughs) God's main man wanted to speak to you directly. Ghosts are real. Kent's a fucking murderer. Case closed. I thought John Moore flip-flopped, though. Exactly. It looks like my man Moore dropped the old double cross. He was playing both sides. Oh, my God. What a hero. He realised ghosts are fucking dope and wanted to believe. I feel that. Richard Parsons received some substantial report from various witnesses, some of whom, although acknowledging Parsons' drink problem, told the court that they could not believe he was guilty. He was pure sauce the whole fucking time. (laughs) 
<laughs> he was too drunk to realize the one knock was yes, two knocks were no. He, he would have fucked it up. It couldn't have been him. Right. The trial ended at about 9.30 and the judge spent a good 90 minutes summing up the case. Mm-hmm. Before I give this final verdict, what are you saying, Ray? You're currently on the jury in Gorse Court. Are the Parsons family guilty of conspiracy to take away William Kent's life through false murder charge of Francis Lines? Or did William Kent truly murder his wife through poisoning? And did Scratch and Fanny reveal this all through his sweet rhythms of the night? This is heavy. If I was on that jury, it would take me a long, long time to come to it because I do kind of believe that he killed his wife, but I'm not too sure about the whole ghost thing. Uh, he's a bastard. Lock him up anyway. Oh, really? Yeah, go for it. Lock him up. Well, it took the jury only 15 minutes to reach a verdict and uh, all defendants were guilty. They did not believe a single fucking word of the ghost stuff. They laughed them out of court, quite literally. Yeah, I can imagine that. John Moore, God King of the Jesus Squad for his amazing (laughs) double cross, alongside Richard James, the publicist, were forced to pay reparations to the sum of £588 to William Kent, which was... Shit, that's a lot. So fucking much. Yeah. Any other conspirators were to give Kent £50 each. Right. They all failed to pay up. (laughs) And as such, they faced time in King's Bench Prison. Mary Fraser, the London relative, was sent down for six months hard labour in Bridewell Palace, scrubbing the floors and wiping royal arses. Shit! Mr Richard Parsons, whilst protesting his innocence the whole time, was sent down for two years imprisonment and stood in the pillory or the stocks on three occasions to be tormented by the crowds. Aww, dick! Apparently he was treated quite nicely because everybody else who was on the pillory at the time uh, were rapists or murderers. (laughs) Right, so no one threw anything at him. No, it was people, just rapists or murderers. People just sort of went, <laughs> Elizabeth II, electric boogaloo, was not charged. Oh, yeah, because she was 11. She was a kid, yeah, exactly. It is, however, to be noted that she was never visited by Scratch and Fanny ever again. So that is it. That is the story of the ghost of Cock Lane, something that became focus of mass controversy between the Methodist and Anglican churches. This is literally why some Christians believe in ghosts and disembodied hauntings and some don't. Thank you so much for bringing this case to me and thank you so much for presenting it so well. Do you want me to start with what I think? Uh, yeah, yeah, jump right in. Okay, so I was a sceptic all the way through up until the point of... The floorboards being brought up. Um, The panelling around her bed. Yeah. Right, yeah. I think then I started to go into the, oh shit, maybe this is true. And then my man Parsons started charging for for entry. The jury is still out on if Kent really did kill his wife, because I'm not too sure. I'm I'm a bit iffy on that. The whole assumption, which I didn't really discuss, is that he probably killed his first wife. Yeah, I'm more on the... Believing that he killed his wife. Yeah. Other than believing that there was a ghost. (laughs) Bless Parsons' heart. I think he was trying to cash in on a bad situation because he was spending all his money on booze and alcohol and he had to pay all that money back to Kent in the first place and roped his poor little daughter in on it. Couldn't agree more, to be honest. I think perhaps they had a bit of an inkling of foul play and just they had no evidence and they needed to tell people basically the scratching was something like 
I don't know, like like rats. And then they were like, oh, shit, I have a really good idea. I think John Moore probably didn't really know anything about it. No. I think he was completely roped in on it. It was probably Parsons or like you never hear about Parsons' wife. Yeah. You never hear about his other kid as well. Yeah. which We don't even know how old she is. I'm assuming probably about eight or nine. So like, fully capable of understanding a story and replying accordingly. I really, really wouldn't put it past it just being a long con for some money. Yeah, very possibly. But I don't know. I, I don't like to think of him having any malicious intent in it, just really wanting to bring Kent to justice. Mm. Or perhaps he was just really fucked off with Kent. Possibly. Because Kent was a fucking absolute bastard. But just before we call it a day, I have one yeah. last thing to discuss. Oh, God, okay. It was reported in the mid-19th century, so this is a good hundred years later, artist J.W. Archer visited the vault at St. John's and was shown the unmarked coffin said to belong to Scratch and Fanny. Okay. Upon opening the casket, he is said to have found a very well-preserved body of a handsome woman with no visible scars or smallpox. Oh, shit, so... Sounds completely suspicious, right? Because it's been a hundred years she would have decomposed. Yeah. Arsenic is said to preserve corpses. Oh shit, so he did murder it. that's what they're thinking. It was used to embalm bodies in the 19th century until it was discovered to be highly dangerous. Okay, so I'm I'm 100% convinced then that he did murder her with arsenic. I just... Yeah. I don't don't believe in the ghosts. (laughs) Yeah, no, fully the same. There was definitely some truth in those allegations. Kent got through a lot of wives. Maybe she knew about it. Maybe Scratch and Fanny knew that he was killing her wife and she wanted her sister to die so she could be with him. And then she told this maybe to someone in the house when she got a bit suspicious of it happening to her. Well, she just started getting sick and she was fine. Do you know what I mean? It was so sick that she couldn't speak. So I don't know, like, is that prolonged arsenic poisoning? You know, Kent always ended up with the money. And that's the moral of the story, guys. If you want the money, kill your wife. Kill your wife. Dead wife. Happy life. Well, thank you so much for this story, Elliot. This this was truly amazing. It was quite right. It was quite a long one to get through. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you stuck around. If you stuck around this long, thank you very much. We are thoroughly enjoying putting out podcasts mm-hmm. again. So just, just thanks for sticking around. If we got anything wrong during this episode i'm sure we did please email us at something peculiar podcast at gmail.com if you want to just message us through instagram that's something peculiar podcast no spaces and then if you want to find us as facebook there's something peculiar podcast with spaces uh by now you probably would have seen the new artwork that we had up we're trying to make it a bit more jazzy um and yeah we overall i think we're just trying to deliver you a better podcast just a generally better experience we're, we're really enjoying doing this and um thank you to our american listeners which is something that we really didn't expect to happen oh god yeah before i go any further um regarding the birds of robots podcast uh there was a lovely listener from switzerland I think her name was Miriam, who sent us a video of her army of pigeons. It was absolutely bizarre. It was so cool. Yeah, we loved your army of pigeons if you're listening. So either she's got like some some little Raspberry Pi computer and she's channeling their brainwaves or robot pigeons haven't quite hit Switzerland yet. 
and she's still got the nice ones. <laughs> Maybe not yet. But on that note, thank you very much for listening. And we will catch you in the next two weeks where Ray will be presenting a case to me. Yeah, guys, stay spooky. Stay scratching. <laughs> See ya. Ghost cold, motherfucker. motherfucker.